today we are going to be looking at the message of hope. Um, and we are, uh, this is our second message in our 1 Peter series. And so if you have a Bible, do turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, it's right near the end of the Bible, so just turn to the back and flick through, um, back through a few books. And today we are going to be working on uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Praise be to God, uh, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a strong start. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. (coughs) Living with hope is a powerful thing, isn't it, as we've just heard. And uh, I remember when I was dating Hannah and... uh, I essentially thought, man, I really hope I can convince this girl to marry me. (laughs) And so I did what I thought was a fail-safe plan. I thought, I am going to take her to Paris and propose to her. And I would like to tell you that this elaborate plan that I hatched and this trip to Paris was entirely motivated by, oh, she'll see just how wonderful I am and how perfect we are for one another and how everything that I planned really speaks into the person that she is and she'll love me more because of it. But my primary motivation was much more, surely she can't say no in Paris. <laughs> surely it would just be too awkward. Surely it would just... And she knows that we will be flying back together, sat next to one another. Surely the awkwardness of that flight will just be enough that she'll think, oh, I can't say no. Um, and so I thought, what better foundation for a marriage than a sense of obligation and vague manipulation? And, uh, and so we went for it. Um, and I don't know why she said yes, but she did. And here we are. But in that moment, I, was, I, I had a hope that she might marry me. And so then it influenced my, my time and how I saw my life and the, what I spent my time doing and my thoughts. When we have hope, it gives us something to live for, doesn't it? It drives us on. It gives us a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. Similarly, when we don't have hope, as we heard a little bit in John and Rachel's story, it can really leave us feeling unmotivated and like we don't have any direction to go in and we don't know what to do with our lives. And maybe that is you right now. Maybe you find yourself in a state of hopelessness. Well, if that is you, I am so pleased you're here. You have picked the right Sunday to come to church. Because the invitation that we're going to look at today in this passage is, what if we never have to feel hopeless ever again? What if every day we could live fueled by a sense of direction and purpose in our lives? This hope that never runs out is something that Peter gets into fairly early on in our passage. He says that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that phrase, 
living hope is kind of interesting. Why does Peter refer to it as a living hope? Well, if there's anybody who's qualified to write about dead hope, it is Peter. This, uh, we call it the book of one Peter, but it's a letter that a guy called Peter wrote, um, and we'll talk a little bit about who he wrote it to in a bit. But the guy who wrote it, from the very first moment that Jesus called his name on the side of a lake and said, come and follow me, Peter was all in. He just bet the farm on Jesus. He said, yeah, I am going to follow this man, and essentially, I am going to put all of my hope in this guy. This guy has all of the answers that my life is asking. And so he, he followed him, and it turned out to be a, a good decision. It, it, for, for a time, it was like, yes, he really is the fulfillment of everything. I'm on the right track. This guy is going to lead me to the good life. Until Jesus dropped a bombshell and said, in a few weeks, I am going to die. And Peter loses his mind. He goes crazy. He starts yelling at Jesus. He says, what? You, you can't die, Jesus. What are we going to do without you? Subtext, what am I going to do without you? How could you do this to me? You, you are leaving me. Everything that I have, I've given my everything to you. I've put all of my hope in you, and you are going to die. And you might be familiar with the story. Sure enough, a few weeks later, Jesus is hung on a cross. He's killed and buried in a tomb. Dead, finished. And Peter, having put all of his hope in Jesus, then knows what it is for his hope to die. And he becomes a man bankrupt of hope. He's got nothing. His life is now completely directionless. He doesn't know what to do. And so he does the only thing that he knows how to do, goes back to the fishing boat that he worked on for so many years, and has a terrible day at work because he's completely forgotten how to fish and doesn't haul anything in. And he sat in the boat absolutely bereft. And then he hears a voice from the shore calling out his name. And he turns and he looks and sees this figure on the shore and he thinks, you're not meant to be here. You shouldn't be here. You were the one. I saw them take your lifeless corpse down from the cross and put it in the tomb. How could you be here? But quickly, his, any questions that he's got and any processing that he does goes out the window and, and diminishes as hope, the very hope that he once had when he first saw Jesus, begins to rise. And he lifts up his fishing garments, not really sure what they're called, lifts them up and jumps into the water and chases after just to be with Jesus once more. And I'm not sure then what the process was, but at some point in between that moment and then the 20 years or so that followed when Peter wrote this letter, he worked out that this was more than just a moment of, oh, I like Jesus. And I liked being with him. And now he's back and I can be with him again. And Peter realized, as we read here, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes everything. It changes everything.
the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the man standing on the shore, was but a small manifestation of the significance of Jesus rising from the dead. When Jesus came out of that tomb and out of that grave, Jesus, God himself, put death to death. He put decay to death, the power of decay, the thing that we just live with, that assumption that we live, that some days things will look nice and beautiful, but one day they will perish, that was put to an end. Jesus, in rising from the dead, put things defiling and things perishing to an end. The power of the resurrection on display. And he started to think, the one that I put all of my hope in is now no longer dead. He's alive. And not only is he alive, but he can never die. My hope can never die. My hope is living. My hope is alive. And the resurrection is the moment that we can point to that gives us certainty that our hope is alive. The resurrection is a moment fixed in history. It is, a, it is of our world. It happened in time. And it is verifiable by historical fact that Jesus was dead. He had died. They put him in a tomb. They sealed it in the proper way. And then this man came out of the tomb and lived again and walked and breathed and ate and spoke to people, never to die again. It is historically verifiable. This resurrection, this thing actually happened. And it might seem trite to say it, but because it has happened in history, it cannot unhappen. That is not how history works. The resurrection has happened and will forever have happened. And so our hope is alive, not because of something that we are really sure will one day happen in the future. Like all forecasts suggest this thing is going to happen. It's not alive because we really, really, really hope that it might happen. Our hope is alive because of something that has already happened, something that cannot unhappen. That is the very basis of our hope. Our hope is anchored in something that has already happened. Death has been defeated. Decay is gone. He can now and will now live forever. That is what gives us such certainty. It's in the past and will forever go on to the future. Because Peter then moves on from where our hope comes from to then looking at where our hope is taking us to. In verse 4, he's taking us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, whenever we think of inheritance, we might be tempted to think of money. But when the original readers of this heard the word inheritance, they thought land. Big old plot of land that I'm going to live and have for the rest of my life. And it is this that Peter is referring to. He's talking about land. And he's referring back to something we looked at last week when Tim was speaking, the 
the fact that the readers that he's writing, uh, the people he's writing to, they are exiles in the place that they're in. He said, you now, you're, you now live in a completely different realm to the one that you think you live in. You're aliens in the land that you're in. Now, when I tend to think of this, I think, oh, spiritually, I have been moved. Spiritually, I no longer live here. Spiritually, I live in heaven. And I just think of it in sort of very vague, pictorial terms, perhaps a few wings and harps and all of those things. What Peter is saying here is that this is a physical place. We have a physical inheritance to look forward to. He's saying, you think you live, Duncan, in the city of Nottingham, in Slenton, opposite the church. You think that is your home. Your home is now in a different physical space not the city of Nottingham, the city of Holy. That is where you now live. Sometimes when um, we're talking with people, kind of stage of life that we're at, Hannah and I, um, we talk to people and they, we talk about house buying and they're saying, oh yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm looking at this place, looking at that place. Um, but I don't think that it's our forever home. We'll just live there for a few years, but it's not where we're going to live forever. Well, let me tell you, if you're still looking for your forever home, I think I can introduce you to it this morning. It is in the holy city. And the Bible speaks about it, but it is so magnificent that words will barely do it justice. In this place, there is no night. There's not even any sun because the whole place shines and radiates with the glory of God. So you don't have to worry about your self-facing garden or your aspect windows and things like that. <laughs> the whole place will be filled with the glory of God. This is where you're going to live. The streets, and this is where you already do live, if you know him. The streets are golden and adorned with precious stones and pearls. And it is a beautiful place, constructed per perfectly by Jesus himself. He has prepared it for us. But it's not just a place. This is a home. This is the fulfillment of everything that you love about the feeling of home. Everything you think of when you, you dream about what the perfect home would look like. Not the perfect house, the perfect home. That sense of security, that sense of comfort, that sense of this is where I'm meant to be. A sense of coziness. It's going to be warm. It's cold here, right? Come on, some Africans could surely come on, amen that, yeah. <laughs> the boiler's never going to go out in this home. Your neighbours are going to be nice. This is where you're going to live. This is where you do already live. This is our inheritance. This is the beauty of what Jesus has been preparing for us. And again, we might be tempted to ask, well, how can we be really sure of this? How do we know this is going to happen? Well, not only is it anchored in the power and the certainty of the resurrection, but it already actually exists. 
in verse 5, it says, you people who are shielded by God's faith until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed until the last time, in the last time. Ready to be revealed. It's ready. Do you think the curtain just needs to come up? This city is already made. It is a physical thing. Somewhere in the heavenlies, the city is ready to come in. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And the, the last times, what it's referring to is one day, again in history, just as the resurrection is anchored in history, we are in this in-between time where soon, one day, we don't know when, but Jesus Christ is going to come back to the creation that he so longs for, for us, bringing with him this holy city for us to live in, for us to dwell in. The very perfection of then human existence will be found in him in this wonderful place. And it might seem trite to point out, but he's not just bringing a city with him, he's also bringing himself with him. Just to skip forward very briefly to verse, the end of verse 7, um, he's talking about, so that these things come, so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This talks about the coming and the revelation of Jesus himself. And in first reading of this, we might think, oh, the, the praise and the glory and the honor to Jesus, right? That is the praise and the glory and the honor that is to come. Not so fast. This praise and the glory and the honor that it talks about here is talking about praise and glory and honor that we will receive. Do you ever find yourself wanting praise and glory? All of us are probably too, too holy to admit yes. Sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Excuse me, a bit of glory, please. It turns out, actually, we're hardwired to want those things. We are hardwired to want honor and glory in our lives. But as in, with most things, we look in the wrong direction to get them. But what it is saying here is that when Jesus Christ comes back, not only will we see him, not only will we get to be with him, but all of the honor and the glory and the praise that is due unto him, that is rightfully his, because he is wonderful and he has done all of this for us. He rose from the dead for us. He's prepared a city for us. When he comes back, it would make sense that we would just exalt him and get nothing more for ourselves. Surely our lot, we have received everything that we possibly could. What Peter's saying here is that Jesus is so good, so generous, so loving, so for us, so towards us, that even all of the glory that he will get is going to be shared with us. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that is going to feel like. But all we need to know is this is the very perfection of human experience. There is nothing better than getting to not only see Jesus, but to share some of his glory, to share some of his majesty and the honor that the perfect human has won for himself. That is going to be ours. Now, some of you are nodding and going, oh, come on, <laughs> what is this? What is the gospel? I can't, this is just. Hallelujah. But it's, gonna, it's not meant to, I'm just, I'm, it's more like I'm reading this first for myself for the first time. I just can't get, it doesn't get better than this. 
One day this is coming. This is our hope. This is our living hope that that is secured by the resurrection and then the promise. We can be so sure of these things because the resurrection's already happened that Jesus is saying, look, I'm coming back. You're going to have this amazing place to live in but you'll almost like, not care about that because you'll be so captivated by me who will be there and you get to share something of the very perfection of God in the process. I'm in. What Peter is doing here is he is trying. He's trying to elicit the response that I... He's trying to get us captivated. He's trying to get us caught up in the very new reality that we live in. That is an unseen thing. We don't see these things yet. But we know them to be true. This is our hope. This is where we've come from, the resurrection. This is where we're going, the holy city, to be with Christ. He's trying to get us to know that that's what we're living for. He's the one we're living to serve. That is the future goal that we are living for. Because in verse 6, he knows, he gets into, life isn't always easy. He says, Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, the Christians that he's writing to are people whose lives have just been disrupted. They have just moved from uh, the big city of Rome, and most of them that he's writing to, they have been forced to move out of Rome and go into all these little colonies um, fairly close by to Rome, but still a big life upheaval. So for us, it would be like, uh, right, you can't can't live in Nottingham anymore. You've got to go and live in Derby. (laughs) Or Mansfield. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I know we've got people from both those places here. We love you. And what is happening now for these people is that while it can sound quite extreme, suffer grief in all kinds of trial, what's happening for them is that they are continuing to live out this gospel that they have received. They're continuing to be people of faith. And what they're starting to experience and encounter is a little bit of opposition, a bit of pushback. They're telling their friends about Jesus. They're continuing to live faithful Christian lives, and their friends don't seem that interested in hearing about Jesus. And actually, some of them find it quite offensive that you would say, Jesus is the only way and the only God that you should be following and the only lifestyle you should be pursuing. And then we've got all these other options. Why can't you just be a bit more tolerant of those? They're also saying to these Christians, actually, some of your views, they don't really fit here. They don't really fit in this culture that we're in. Does any of this sound familiar? It's very, very similar to our situation. And actually, what these Christians are facing is not so much persecution in the way that we might think of it in maybe the church in Syria or in North Korea that we'd read about today. But what they are facing is really just a bit of good old-fashioned discouragement and resistance to them living faithful lives as believers in the the places that they are. And the danger that they're in and the thing that Peter is concerned for these guys is not so much that they would just pack in their faith and start following some other religion. What Peter is concerned about is that they might stop 
They might be knocked back by this discouragement. They might stop living these faithful lives as followers of Jesus. That they might go from being people who were being faithful and obedient and continuing to advance the kingdom and the mission of the church to just withdrawing a little bit, to becoming just that little bit more insular, going in on themselves just a little bit. And what Peter here knows is that it's just how easy it is for all of us to get discouraged and to then get a bit of a knockback or face a bit of opposition to how we're trying to live and allow circumstances to then dictate how we go. I had, uh, in my second job, my second office job, um, I went in with a very bold plan. I was like, I'm going to get the whole office into a living relationship with Jesus. This is going to happen. I was so full of faith. I was like, right, I've got a plan. whole office is going to get saved. And I thought, well, that's probably a bit like, I can't start with that and lose focus. So I'll get my whole team saved. And I thought, well, maybe that's, even that's a little bit too far. So I'm just going to focus on one person, the person sitting next to me. And I, it turns out I had a quite good relationship with him. This is great. And so I, one day I sat him down at lunch, and I just like, told him the whole gospel. I was like, and I was compelling. I was funny. I was winsome. In my head, I was compelling. I was funny. I was winsome. And I invited him to this alpha course, and I was like, this is it. This is the start of this grand plan. It's going to sweep through the office. And I got to the end of my spiel, and he basically looked at me and said, oh, that sounds nice. I'm not really interested. I like, what? <laughs> I was compelling <laughs> and winsome. And it took me a bit of a time. I was just like, I was so convinced that if I just tried hard enough and went for it, that it would work. But I got knocked back. And what I then allowed myself to do is think, well, what's the point? What's, I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to put myself out there again. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable. I'm not going to go again. I got wounded by it. And what Peter's referring to here, it, when he says all kinds of trials, these are just anything. He's, he's been very vague, isn't he? All kinds of trials. He's not focusing on one thing. Just anything that would knock us back like that. Anything that might stop us pursuing and being faithful and obedient to, to following Jesus in our lives. We can all come up with a thousand and one excuses to not live faithful lives. It, for you, it could be anything. It could be that you kind of, I, I really had a, a great prophetic word for someone and I laid my hands on them and gave it to them and I was so sure. I then asked them, like, oh, did, it, did, that, did that resonate with you? And they're like, well, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> you go for healing, and you don't see someone healed, and you go for another healing, and you go for another healing, and eventually we just really lose our faith and our expectation of it to work, and we take our eyes off this great hope that has been won for us, the thing that was driving us, the thing that was giving us purpose, and we start to withdraw. We get discouraged. We stop making decisions to put ourselves out there and to live the faithful life. And we fall into the trap that Peter is trying to advise his readers to not get into. And this could happen to us as a church. We run the risk of being just a very established church 
It's a danger in itself that we are an established church. Actually, if we wanted to, we could just sort of bumble along for a little bit. Being a nice, big church, maybe get a little bit smaller over the years, to not have a, a, a cutting edge, not have a zeal, not faithfully pursuing Jesus and all that he's calling us to. Be defined by our discouragements and dis- defined by the trials that we face. Losing sight of the great hope that we have. Losing sight of the one who is continually calling us on. But what Peter says at the end in verse 7, is he's saying that it doesn't have to be like this. He says, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor. The proven genuineness of your faith. He's saying every single trial that comes at you, every single time you're tempted to be knocked back, every single time you're tempted to lose sight of the great hope that you have, the thing that is your motivation, the reality that you're now in, every time you you lose your focus on the thing that is to come, actually, it doesn't have to knock you back. It can be an opportunity for you to show that the, the, the living hope that is within you is far greater than any trial that may come at you. This is exactly how Peter lived his life. He continually faced adversity after Jesus left him and he started to to build the church along with many others, continued to face adversity, locked up, beaten, put in jail. But every single time Peter showed, no, the hope that I'm living for, the hope that is within me, is far greater than anything that can come at me. What Peter is saying is he's saying, look, you know that this hope you have is true. You know the reality of the resurrection. You know what is coming. You know what your end goal is and the end destination of the life that you're, the, the track that your life is on is. He's saying, it can't, you, and you cannot lose it. This cannot slip through your hands. It cannot unhappen. This is now your reality. And so with a big old smile on his face, he's saying, so live like it. So live according to that hope. Live according to the living hope that is within you. And for Peter, and for the audience that he's writing to, and for us as a church today, we were never meant to be a people who would just cling on. We're never meant to be a people who, because we have a hope, we just think, oh, I'm just going to stand here until Jesus returns and he'll make it all okay, because I have a hope. No, the hope that we have is so powerful and so sure that we can give everything to follow after him. We don't have to fear anything that comes at us because the hope that we have drives us on. It empowers us. It doesn't mean we have to cower in a corner. We can keep going. We can live faithful lives pursuing Jesus. We can take risks for him. We can move house into an area we don't really want to go into knowing that, well, I just know these people need the gospel. It might make me less comfortable, but I'm going to do it. As a church, we have an expansive vision. We are to be a disciple-making community who are to reach this city. We're to take the, the gospel that we have received, this hope that we have, and proclaim it in boldness to help people show people that they can know God too that they really can find freedom from everything that holds them back and discover their God-given purpose so that they too can make a difference. 
And even beyond our city, we're to look out and to raise up and empower teams of people who will go captivated by the hope that they have and take the radical step of, even though I know all of the difficulties I'll face, we'll go and start churches in other cities. We've started with Birmingham. Before the end of the year, Hannah and I will be going with a team to Manchester. But whatever role we have, all of us are called. All of us are part of this. All of us have a, a part to play. And we'll never fulfill the things that God has called us to. This, this expansive vision, we'll never fulfill it if we're a people who, when trials come and difficulties come, we're, we're knocked back. We focus on them more than we focus on the hope that we have. But if we're a people that know that the hope that we have is far greater than anything that can come at us, the vision of what we're living for, to be with him, to be glorified with him, and where we will one day live, then we will see these things happen. Let me pray.